Good morning, witches. This is the Witch Daily Show, coming to you from New Orleans, with host Tanya Brown. Our episodes span about 20 minutes long to give you just a little pop of magic. So, tune in, take a deep breath, and enjoy. Good morning, witches. It is January 26th, 2024. It is Friday. I am Tanya, and this is the Witch Daily Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Witchway Magazine. So let's get your day going with a little magic. Our quote of the day is The two hardest tests on the spiritual road are the patience to wait for the right moment and the courage not to be disappointed with what we encounter. By Paolo Kaleo, Veronica decides to die. So we are talking cranberries. So this is the day where I'm like, okay, what kind of like spell work can you do with cranberries? I know we've kind of talked about the lore. We've talked about the correspondences. And the thing that kind of hits me the most is its richness, its health benefits, its abundant nature. So I think this would be a great thing to toss into, and I'm going to throw you a little bit, maybe toss a few into chicken noodle soup. I know that seems like a little off base, but there is this Chinese herbal uh, soup that I'll eat when I'm not feeling well, and they put goji berries in it. And I think maybe kind of replicating that idea of throwing in a few berries that have antioxidants into like your chicken noodle soup, I think is a great idea. It doesn't really alter the flavor at all, and I think that's a really fun way to do that. I also think maybe giving a offering of cranberry juice uh, would be really, really intense and vi- like vibrant if you're looking for something to do with life, growth, uh, intensity, health. And ultimately, I think cranberries and cranberry juice are just healthy. Maybe tossing a few in your pocket when you go on a job interview, or if you're visiting a loved one and creating like a health sachet, I think they're great for them. All right, moving into some headlines. This comes to us from businessinsider.com. Bloodsuckers or bloated corpses, how science has tried to explain vampire myths. And this is written by Jenny McGrath. In the early 1700s, a series of unusual events kicked off a media sensation about vampires. One physician described a magical plague in in Serbia where perfectly normal, very dead are arising from their undisturbed graves to kill the living. Articles and books on these vampires' attacks soon appeared in Vienna, Berlin, Paris, and London. There was skepticism. But some observers treated the phenomena of vampires almost scientifically. They noted eyewitness accounts of how bodies looked and the evidence of the deceased had been harassing or murdering others. Was this a magical plague or a more typical one? Vampires were very real to people in the past, but there are many ways science can explain their characteristics, whether they come from folklore or fiction. So what are vampires? They are blood-drinking creatures hailing from many countries. Uh, folklore dating back thousands of years, but many modern notions of vampires started with the 1700s media frenzy and continued with Dracula and other tales. 
According to more Slavic traditions, a vampire is an undead being that rises from the grave to drink blood and takes its life force from the living. The vampire's victims might then become undead themselves. So, it's really interesting. So, was vampirism based on a real disease? Uh, pale skin, fear of sunlight, pointy fangs, and taste for blood. All the tropes of fictional vampires have long caused people co to connect the characteristics to symptoms of real diseases, from rabies to leukemia to tuberculosis. The attrition Michael Hefferon favors porphyria, a group of rare disorders caused by a buildup of a chemical called porphyrin. They're needed to make hemoglobin, which carries oxygen to tissues, and excess uh, causes a range of symptoms. Quote, people might present firstly with illness and fatigue, uh, Hefron told Insider. There may be have a sensitivity to light that causes blistering skin, and their urine may appear red or brown. A neurologist suggests rabies, which causes animals to transmit to humans through a bite. As another potential disease, people may have mistaken for, for vampirism. The disease can cause light sensitivity and affect sleep-wake cycles, leading to insomnia, a potential reason for vampires' nocturnal activities. Researchers who looked at early vampire novels thought leukemia might have been an inspiration. Folklorist Michael Bell attributes U.S. cases of suspected vampirism in the 1700s and 1800s to tuberculosis. Those sick with TB grew fatigued, lost weight, and coughed up blood. So, and some people believe Bram Stoker's, Bram Stoker's Dracula was possibly based on a cholera outbreak. So, vampire fiction versus folklore. As the body decomposes, cell bursts leaking enzymes and chemicals, blood pools and capillaries and veins, altering skin color. Bacteria digest tissue, the body bloats with methane, pneumonia, and other gases. The buildup of liquefied tissue and gas can either um, leak out or burst. So much of this deterioration takes place in the first year, but it can take a decade or longer until only bones remain. So, in 1892, residents of Exeter, Rhode Island, exhumed the bodies of three women, all members of the same family who had died of consumption. Two had died nearly a decade earlier. One woman, Mercy Bell, had recently died while her brothers became sick. So, for those of you don't know, that don't know, the Bell family kind of created a lot of the... or were, almost became, like, evidence for a lot of the, the lore of vampires... This idea was that dead family members be like energetically feeding on their alive family members from the grave was causing live family members to get sick. So when they said they exhumed the bodies of the dead Bell family, they didn't look as dead as they should, which kind of like reinforced uh, this idea. And ultimately, it's all very interesting. Um, as scientists began to learn and understand more about the body and death, stories about vampires started to evolve. In 1819, a physician named John Polarodi revamped the supernatural being's image, basing his wealthy uh, Lord Ruthven in The Vampire on the romantic poet Lord Byron. I had no idea. I'm actually a big fan of Lord Byron. I had no idea he was kind of like the image for the vampire. That's so exciting. A suave monster uh, said to be alluring and appalling. 
The vampire's ability to transform makes them enduring with an appeal that seems unlikely to die anytime soon. All right, witches, we're actually going to talk more about witchcraft and vampirism after this break. I'm going to throw this over to the Moon Correspondent, and we will talk more. Hello to all of my astro friends. This is Serendipity, the Chicago astrologer, coming at you with your daily moon mantra for Friday, January 26th. The waning gibbous moon continues to shine bright like a diamond in Leo. Here, the moon squares Uranus. There could be some upsetting things that happen today, things you never could have predicted. There's a nervous energy underlying the day, and it could have you jumping at shadows. The best way to deal with this energy is to slow all the way down. Take it one thing at a time. There will be a fair share of challenges today, but if you set the expectation that this day will have a lot of twists and turns, you'll be less likely to feel fragmented when it does. Your daily moon mantra is, sometimes you have to go through the worst to get to the best. This has been your Daily Moon Mantra with Serendipity, the Chicago Astrologer, signing off and reminding you that you are in charge of your own destiny. Only the elusive and exclusive witches, eminent in their communities and ever attuned to the murmurs of the world, are privy to the Grimoire Society's monthly missive. Not for the frivolous, obtuse, or inattentive, our cereal caters to the creme de la creme of witching society, imparting knowledge, amusement, and the art of conjuration at every turn of the moon. Safely ensconced within your witch's cabinet, nestled between the eye of Newt, or consider presenting a subscription to the fledgling witch, new to the neighborhood with a yearning for the enchanting camaraderie of the witching world. Only $5 an issue, free shipping, U.S. only, at thegrimoiresociety.com. All right, we are back. So today is our encyclopedia day. However, I'm in the middle of moving and my encyclopedias are boxed up. So I was like, okay, what do I have instead? I found my vampire encyclopedia. And I was like, you know what? This works. And it works with the theme of our headline. So here we are. So let's talk witchcraft and vampires. According to my book, um... The Completely Revamped, The Vampire Book, The Encyclopedia of the Undead by Gordon Melton. In Europe, witchcraft and vampirism have had an intertwining history since ancient times. Many vampires first appeared among the demonic beings of the pagan uh, polytheistic religions. They would include such entities as the Greek Lamai, the seven evil spirits of Babylon mythology, and as Christianity arose, it tended to push the pagan religions aside to denounce any truth claims made by pagan believers. As a whole, Christianity assumed that the pagan deities were unreal, that they did not exist. Typical of the church's stance was the account of Paul's encounter with the Greek philosophers on the Areopagus, recounted in the biblical book of Acts 17.16.34 in which he contrasted the one true God with the many gods represented in the statues. The pagan religious funct uh, functions went uh, under a variety of names and terms that in English mean witch and or sorcerer were common. As the pagan religion was swept aside, 
So the witches and sorcerers were to some extent pushed from the emerging urban areas into the countryside. The church saw them as worshippers of imaginary deities. Crucial to the developing attitude concerning the pagan religions were magic. Magic, the ability to cause change by calling upon supernatural entities and using supernatural powers, was almost universally accepted as real. People, including church leaders, believed that wondrous feats were possible either by the power of the Holy Spirit or by reference to illegitimate supernatural powers. Witches, the pagan practitioners, had the ability to do magical feats the average person could not. Among these were many things that even in pagan days were considered evil. It must be remembered that many of the pagan entities existed as an explanation for the intrusion of evil and the injustice in a person's life. With the marginalization of the witches and the deconstruction of paganism system or pagan systems, the evil functions of the old entities tended to be transferred to witches. Thus emerged the strega in ancient Rome. The strega, or witch, was known as the strix, a night-flying demon that attacked infants and killed them by sucking on their blood. Over a period of time, the strix was identified as an individual who had the power of transformation into the forms of various animals, including owls and crows, and who in that guise attacked infants. The Strix then became the Strega of medieval Italy and the Strigori of Romania. Through the first millennia AD, the church retained its notion that paganism and witchcraft were imaginary. Illustrative of this belief was a 10th century document, the canon uh, Episcopi, the canon attributed pagan belief to the devil, emphasized that the devil's work was to present imaginary world of paganism to the followers of the goddess Diana. The church had a similar attitude towards vampires. It had discovered a belief in the vampires from earlier cultures and also had assumed that they were not real. This perspective was illustrated in two legal documents, one from the East and one from the West. The first was a uh, nomo canon or authoritative ordinance that was referred to the East through the Middle Ages. In the measure, by the middle of the 8th century, a Saxon law described the belief in Strix, vampire witches. Later in the century, it was strengthened by a law uh, decreeing that the death penalty for any who perpetuated the belief in the uh, vampire witches and any who, because of that belief, attacked an individual believed to be a vampire witch and harmed that individual. A legal debate erupted in the 11th century in Hungary when King Stephen I passed a law against the Strige, who rode out at night and fornicated. One of his successors, King Holloman, struck the law from the books based on the notion that no such thing existed. Oh, so first they were like, hey, being a vampire, which is, is illegal, don't do it. Then they were like, hey, don't assume someone's a vampire witch. And finally, they're like, there are no vampire witches. Take the law away. So by the 1480s, the Inquisition was largely had done its work. At limited times and places, the Inquisition had uh, considered sorcery and malevolent magic. But in 1484, Pope Innocent VIII issued his bull, which uh, was kind of like redefining witchcraft, and that's where we get the hammer of the witches. 
Now, the effect of this was to, um, I mean, we know it was to try to get people to be Catholic. We know that. So eventually what happened was a friar, Leo Atticus, uh, basically wrote this thing that was trying to connect vampirism to witchcraft and to argue that vampirism was the work of Satan. So he was saying vampirism is real, and the devil was assigned the power not only of creating fantastical illusions, but also of actually reanimating corpses. So Richard especially related vampirism to observations of witchcraft in the Hammer of the Witches. So kind of the Hammer of the Witches was... So it's almost as if a power of witchcraft is vampirism, is kind of what they're saying. The medieval identification of vampires with witches of both Satan was also redefined, also redefined vampirism as real evil that could be opposed by weapons of the church. Thus, vampires were the opposite of sacred and could be affected by such blessed objects. Crucifix, water, holy water, wafer, which is funny because when you look at witches in media, kind of the same, right? One can see the parallel process of demonization of vampires in the Eastern Orthodox of Russia. Here, witches and vampires also were identified with each other. And vampires were designated as heretic, which we know witches were as well. Witches, after their death, became vampires. The process of so labeling the vampire seems to have occurred over a period of time. And the convergence of heresy with witchcraft and vampirism served to stigmatize the uh, uh, stigmatize basically non-Catholics as more evil than they actually were. The Austrian laws passed in the middle of the eighth, uh, 18th century, which outlawed the practice of staking and burning bodies of suspected vampires, marked the beginning of the end of widespread belief in vampires in the urban West. By the end of, of the century, it would be almost impossible to make a case for existence of physical vampires. Though in the 19th century, spiritualists and theophists would begin to argue the existence of uh, psychic vampirism. So it's all really fascinating, kind of historically how it's linked. And I think really often these two things are separated, right? We view vampirism and witchcraft as two separate things, completely unrelated but historically, they're not. They're very intertwined. And I think that's why a lot of witches have interests in vampires. And um, a lot of vampires tend to um, practice occult practices as well. I think it's all kind of interconnected. So sometimes when I talk about vampires on here, I'm like, is this like way off topic of like the whole point of this show? Because I tried my best to stay on topic, but you know. Uh, but this kind of uh, solidifies that maybe it's not that off topic. Anyways, witches, we are wrapping up this episode of the Witch Daily Show. I want to give a shout out to Nicole Lilly. Nicole, you cunning, powerful sun goddess. Elaine Alicia, you charming, mystical Loch Ness monster. Lillian, you esoteric, scrumptious butterfly. And Beth, you dreamlike, rule-breaking muskox. Thank you for so much for being Patreon supporters. I really appreciate it. And we do have a card pull today from the iconic roast oracle, the Black Square. 
Apparently, you are only down for doing the bare minimum during an incredibly significant time to stand up and advocate for human rights. Drawing this card reminds you that your actions need to not just be performative. They need to be based in real knowledge and include follow-through both online and in real life. You don't have to be on the front lines, but at this point in history, you can't just be silent either. That is actually something that, like, I have a lot of feelings about. Uh, people are real quick to tell you when you're doing, like, when you're not doing enough, but very often they're doing absolutely nothing. And I think that is, um, I think some people think that bullying other people and being like, you're not doing enough to fight against this thing is enough of action for them. Like, they think that's enough for them to do. And in reality, they're doing absolutely nothing while the person they're often bullying is at least trying to do something. I don't know. I think about that a lot. Anyways, witches, that's all I've got for you today. Don't forget any books, decks, headlines, sources. Anything we reference today can be found in the podcast episode description or witchpod.com. And we'll talk again next week. Okay. Bye. Witches. We hope you have a wonderful day full of joy and gentleness and confidence. Links for this week's episodes, our website, Patreon, along with a free daily card pull can be found at witchpod.com. One stop for everything we talk about. Now, take one more deep breath and have a great day.